ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the fourth season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, murder below the nat line. For photos and additional information, please go to AJC.com breakdown. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at AJC Breakdown. I only made it worse by lying. I've got to get the truth out because I haven't been able to sleep good since I said this. I really do not know what happened, and if I did, I would tell. I've never had anybody in the course of my practicing law, and I've tried a lot of cases, all kinds of civil and criminal cases, point to somebody in the jury and say they had sex with him. Similar transaction evidence, there's a reason why the state wants to put it in, and that's because it's basically character assassination. Virginia Tatum and her husband Doyle live south of Adel out in the country. A huge field of cotton stretches out across the street from their home. We talked on their front porch, swatting away mosquitoes and gnats, of course. And Tatum was swatting away something else. Another witness's claims that she lied on the stand. Testimony by Tatum, as you know by now, was crucial to convicting Devanya Inman of the murder of Donna Brown. And, as you know, Tatum's testimony has been ridiculed because of its seemingly impossible precision. So many people have basically accused me of lying for years. <laughs> and it's not what happened. And I didn't lie. I saw him. That's Tatum, who couldn't insist more strongly that she saw what she saw and told the truth about it. If you remember, Virginia Tatum was waiting for a newspaper delivery at about 2 a.m. in the parking lot of Adele's Howard Johnson's. She said quite definitively that she saw Devanya Inman driving the victim's car. She described him in exquisite detail. From the goatee to the ribbed white tank top to the gold chain to the diamond ear stud. All in a fleeting moment as the car sped by in the dark. Well, there was another person there with Tatum that night. Lee Grimes was standing next to her in the gloom waiting for his bundles of the Valdosta Daily Times and the Tifton Gazette that he would distribute throughout the town. I spoke to him at his home about his testimony 16 years before. Here's Grimes describing the scene that night. No lights out there at all at the time, just dark as Egypt. Wait a minute. Dark as Egypt? Well, yeah. It's in the Old Testament, right there in Exodus. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thy hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. So there you go. Dark as Egypt. She saw him ride by, picked him out in a dark car, black people in a dark car, out of a lineup or something, which is totally ridiculous. It was dark over there. I don't think 
if you put a gun to my head, I could tell you where it was a black person, a green person, or a purple person. I don't think you could have seen him. Grimes wasn't nearly that emphatic when he testified at trial. On the stand, he said he didn't recall anything like what Tatum had testified to. Tatum, he said, didn't say a word to him about hearing a gunshot on the other side of the highway or about seeing the car. She had said the car passed about three feet away from her. Grimes didn't see such a car, and he was standing right there with her. He was asked whether he had an opinion as to the truth of Tatum's statement. He started to answer the question, but then said, I'd rather just state what I saw, which was nothing. He said he didn't know about the impact of Tatum's testimony until he read about it later in the newspaper. By then, he'd already testified from the stand. I didn't know until the trial that she had told all that stuff, which apparently the jury believed that was a big part of the case I found out later. And apparently they didn't believe me, and I wish I had been a little more forceful in my testimony, but I just didn't think anything up. And at the time, I didn't know that until even the day I testified. I think she had testified earlier in the day or earlier in the week, and I didn't know what she had said. I sat with Grimes in his living room. We were surrounded by music memorabilia, three or four turntables, and thousands, thousands of record albums. They were stacked on shelves, floor to ceiling, in two large rooms that were dedicated solely to album storage. He ran fans in the room to control the humidity and protect the music. This is a guy who loves his vinyl. Grimes told me that Tatum spoke to him of the reward that had been posted for information in Brown's murder. He said she even pointed out a different car on a different night and said, well, I'll let him tell you. She said, you know, they got a $5,000 reward. That'd be really nice to win that reward. And when those people out there, that could be somebody that was mur- had murdered. So, but this was a month or two after the murder. This was not the night of the murder that she claimed. And I swear that it was not. This was a month or long, whenever they came out with a reward. I don't know. It What's was weeks about? later. Don't forget, Virginia Tatum was asked on the stand whether she came forward so she could collect the reward. She denied that. She said that, like Donna Brown, she was a mother and wanted justice for Brown's seven-year-old son. Grimes wasn't buying that. That's my story, and I'll stick to it till I die. I'll give me a tack of Bibles. I don't care. I think, to, to make a long story short, she got the reward, and that's why she did it. And she knows she did. I saw her in the bank one day, and I said, how do you sleep at night? And she didn't say. She just turned around and walked off. She didn't say anything to me. Tatum also remembers that scene in the bank. He actually um, confronted me. Um, God. He told, me, he told me he confronted you in the bank one time. He did, and he asked me how I could sleep at night, and I was like, I was fine because I didn't lie. I turned up at the Tatum house about 5 p.m. that day. Doyle and Virginia Tatum had just spent eight hours watching two of their grandkids. As the gnats of mosquitoes swarmed the porch, one granddaughter emerged from the front door, her face painted into a mummy by one of Virginia's daughters. A short while later, the second granddaughter emerged, her face painted like a cat. It was Tatum's sense of family that made her feel connected to Donna Brown. She and Brown were both moms who worked difficult night shifts to put food on the table for their kids, Tatum said. I'm a mother of five children. All my children are grown, I have my grandkids. I don't take something like that as a joke. When, when you say something about what you've seen or what you've done, it's not a joke. That's somebody's life. You're not playing with toys. You're playing with somebody real. I mean, it's, it's real, you know? And I'm sorry, I had to do what my conscience said. I can't worry about what Lee Grimes said. 
Since Donna Brown's murder, Tatum said she has thought a lot about Brown's son, who was seven at the time. She always worried about what became of him, who raised him, how he was coping without his mom, whether he was happy. Tatum says she used to go to local Walmarts at Christmas time and leave presents suited for a young boy under the angel tree. People leave presents under the angel trees for needy children. This marks the first time Tatum has spoken out publicly about the case. She said the whole ordeal was traumatic for her then and is still painful now. She broke down several times during the interview. Tatum acknowledges that she did receive a reward for helping to put Inman away. It came about six months after the trial, she said. They didn't do it for the money. The truth was I was a woman working at night with children at home. And I was actually working at Atlanta Journal-Constitution racks at that point in time. And there was many different times I actually had someone come up behind me while I'm changing racks walk up on me, two, three in the morning. Now you understand why I said something. Because it could have been me. The reality of her and what happened to her is what got to me and I could not say anything because I thought that could have been me. Who would explain to my children what happened? Who would tell my husband what happened to me? You've just heard very powerful if conflicting accounts of what happened that night far more extensive and a great deal more passionate than what the jury heard at trial. So let's get back to the trial. The prosecution rested after calling nearly 30 witnesses, and now it was Devanya Inman's turn. His defense was not that surprising. He didn't do it. He wasn't there. Somebody else did it. They never found the murder weapon. And so on. The first witness the defense put up was Lee Grimes. Then came two alibi witnesses, including Inman's girlfriend, Christy, who said Inman was with her at her place until well after the murder occurred. Her sister, Marquetta Thomas, you'll recall, had recanted her testimony implicating Inman, but the prosecution discounted her recantation and stuck with her original statements to police. So the defense put up three women who had been in jail with Marquetta and all told remarkably similar stories. They said she told them she was high at the time she made her statement to police and that she lied about Inman's involvement in the killing. She told two of the women she was angry with Inman for physically abusing her sister. And she told another that she lied because the authorities were threatening to take away her children. Two additional witnesses testified that Inman told them the day after the robbery and murder, he didn't have any money. A cousin said he bought Inman a pack of cigarettes that morning because Inman didn't have any cash, and an aunt said she bought his lunch for the same reason. The defense also tried to counter the devastating testimony of Kwame Spaulding, the prosecution's jailhouse snitch. He said Inman confessed to him in detail in their cell. The prosecution had claimed that Inman told Spaulding things that only the killer would know. The defense, however, said much of what Spaulding testified to had been in the local newspapers by the time of Inman's purported confession. We know there were newspapers there that was established in court, but we don't know whether Spaulding saw them. Then the defense offered its most important witnesses and its theory of the case. Outside the presence of the jury, defense attorney Melinda Riles made a proffer. Proffer is a word you almost never hear outside a courtroom. What it means is, I want to give you evidence to support my argument, 
but you haven't admitted the evidence yet, so I can't say it in front of the jury. So a proffer is an attempt to persuade a judge to admit certain evidence or testimony. And this was pretty explosive. It concerned a man named Hercules. Riles told Judge Buster McConnell she had two witnesses who would testify that Hercules Brown admitted to them that he killed Donna Brown. A third witness was prepared to testify that Brown tried to talk her into helping him commit a robbery. Hercules Brown had grown up in Adel. He was working at the Taco Bell at the time of the murder. During Inman's death penalty trial, Hercules Brown was sitting in jail too, awaiting his own death penalty trial. He'd been charged with savagely beating two people to death with a baseball bat during an armed robbery of a local grocery. The prosecutors objected to this testimony. They said it was inadmissible hearsay testimony from witnesses so unreliable that the jury shouldn't hear anything they had to say. Before he ruled, Judge McConnell said he wanted to hear from one of the witnesses. The jury remained out of the courtroom when Thomas Dwayne Edwards took the stand. Edwards told the court that he and Hercules had gone to church and school together, played football together, grew up together, he said. Edwards said about two months after the Taco Bell murder, he was at the car wash minding his own business when Hercules Brown walked up and confessed to the murder. Edwards described the conversation with Hercules this way. I'm the one who did it. Fanya didn't do it. I looked at him and I said, man, why? I don't know, man. I just did it. Hercules said he had a 44 with one bullet in the chamber and shot Donna Brown and then took her car. He also said, according to Edwards, that he had removed the mask he'd worn just before he happened to pass a police car. Those strike me as two important details, the caliber of the murder weapon and the fact that a mask was used in the crime. Would Edwards have known about those things? When asked why he wanted to testify, Edwards said of Inman, Wrong man y'all got right there. That's the wrong man they're prosecuting. Like so many people who testified in this case, Edwards took the stand wearing a prison jumpsuit. He was serving a 20-year sentence for child cruelty and aggravated battery for physically abusing a young girl. He pleaded guilty to those charges. But he denied committing those crimes when he was cross-examined by District Attorney Bob Ellis. This, Ellis said, made Edwards such an unreliable witness he shouldn't be allowed to testify before the jury. And of course, there's Marquetta Thomas, again. The defense said Marquetta would now testify that she and Hercules Brown were smoking pot one day when a song by Tupac Shakur came on the radio. Hercules, Marquetta said, started singing in sync with the music, rapping. He had killed the woman at Taco Bell. The third witness was Takesha Pickett. She worked at Taco Bell with Hercules and was a cousin of Inman's. The defense said she would testify that Hercules asked her to help him pull off an inside robbery of the Taco Bell. He told her he'd have to rough her up a little bit to make it look realistic. She passed. The prosecution objected to all of this. Ellis said the three witnesses couldn't be trusted at all. Two had lied on the witness stand. The other was Inman's cousin. Judge McConnell agreed. And I quote, I don't see any indicia of reliability whatsoever with these witnesses. If there was any other independent evidence that Mr. Brown committed the offense, then I would have no problem with that. But there was nothing. 
The judge continued, Nothing that they testified to passes the smell test, much less any test for trustworthiness. So I'm going to disallow that and not allow any testimony to be heard by the jury that would indicate that someone else other than Inman committed the offense. McConnell's ruling was a big blow to the defense. Here's one of Inman's lawyers, Melinda Riles. To me, it was, you know, vital, particularly once you have your witnesses saying, well, the story that I gave to police to begin with, that was wrong. This is exactly, this this here is what happened. And it, it was very, very important to me. I thought our case for the court was strong enough to actually get that information in to actually maybe, you know, point to someone else's as having the means and the opportunity, you know, that there was a strong possibility of it being someone else. Of course, you know, the judge, um, the judge said, no, I don't agree with you. And that was very, very disheartening. I personally thought our proffer was strong. Did Judge Buster McConnell make the right call? We have to begin by understanding what hearsay is. That's criminal defense lawyer Don Samuel, an expert in Georgia law, giving his take on what happened at Inman's trial. McConnell got it all wrong, he said. Hearsay is when a witness is on the stand reciting what another person said, okay? The other person, let's call the declarant. That's what lawyers call the person who's not the witness, but whose out-of-court statement is being repeated. That's the declarant. The witness on the stand can be cross-examined, and the cross-examination of that witness might be, did the declarant really say that? Did the declarant smile when he was saying it. Did the declarant have, you know, was he looking around and looked unbelievable when he said it? The witness can always be cross-examined. The problem is the declarant can't be cross-examined. So there's no way to determine for the jury or the fact finder or the judge to decide, do we believe the declarant? That's the basic problem of hearsay. The out-of-court person who's made a statement, the declarant, can't be cross-examined. And Hercules Brown wasn't about to be cross-examined. David Perry, one of Inman's lawyers, told McConnell that he'd paid a visit to Hercules Brown at the jail and explained to him what the three witnesses would say. At that point, Hercules invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege to remain silent, Perry said. For this reason, Inman's lawyers were seeking what's called a hearsay exception because Hercules wasn't going to testify. So the question is, can another witness get on the stand and recite what Hercules Brown said. Hercules Brown is the declarant. And the answer to that is, is the statement of the declarant sufficiently believable that we're going to carve out an exception to the hearsay rule because his statement was sufficiently believable? Samuel said that in evaluating whether a declarant's statement is believable, there are lots of factors a judge can consider. Was the declarant a close friend of the witness and someone in whom the declarant often confided? Um, a family member, a close friend, a, you know, a you know, business associate or something like that. That's one of the considerations a court can decide as to whether the, the declarant is believable. Another factor that the court can decide as to the credibility of the declarant is, is the declarant confessing to a crime? Nobody ever confesses to a crime, in theory, unless it's truthful. So, assuming that the declarant, Hercules Brown, made these statements to the witnesses, 
Why would he have confessed to having committed a murder or participating in a robbery or planning a robbery unless it was true? So that's one of the things that, that the judge should have been looking at is the likelihood that the statement of the declarant, the out-of-court statement of the declarant is believable. And if he's confessing to a crime, it sure as hell is believable. Whether the witnesses are telling the truth or not is for the jury to decide. McConnell's mistake, Samuel said, was that he ruled on the reliability of the witnesses and not on what Hercules Brown had allegedly told them. The judge does not have the right to say, there are certain witnesses who I don't believe, and therefore I'm not going to let those witnesses testify. Whether it's an eyewitness, whether it is a bank record custodian, whether it is, you know, a character witness, we don't let judges do that. It's what we have juries for. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Rules are good. Rules imply order. They imply logic and comprehensibility. But the rules of evidence? I'm not a lawyer, but sometimes the rules of evidence seem less like a list than a double helix, twisting around itself over and over again. Atlanta lawyer Bud Seaman represented Devanya Inman on appeal. He explains the quirkiness of the law in this instance. They have Hercules going and asking uh, at least one other person who worked at the, at the fast food restaurant to participate in the robbery with him. Then they have a confession from Hercules to a lifelong friend. Of course, Judge McConnell deemed this testimony inadmissible in Inman's case. But if Hercules Brown had been charged with Donna Brown's murder, all this definitely would be admissible against Hercules in his case. It's just an anomaly of the evidentiary rules uh, in criminal law that, that testimony would be admissible against Hercules Brown, but it would not, the same witness saying the same thing would not be admissible in defense of Devonia Inman. And of course, it was used against Inman in his own case. Don't forget what Kwame Spaulding said Inman told him. In Devanya's case, you have the, the statement that Devanya made to a convicted criminal. Um, that came in, in against him, but the statement that Hercules Brown makes to this person who's known him all his life, who's also a convicted criminal, doesn't come in because the judge says it's, it's not reliable enough. As dramatic as closing arguments can be, and I've heard some amazing oratory in court, Veteran trial lawyers will tell you, the case has already been won or lost by the time the attorneys rise for closing arguments. You may remember this conversation from an earlier season of Breakdown. Attorneys say they use the closing to solidify their hold on jurors who are already in their camp. They don't expect to make many converts. If you accept that, then it's pretty clear that Devanya Inman had already lost his case when his defense attorney, David Perry, made his closing. We don't get to hear it, of course, but the trial transcript shows that Perry made a strong argument. The holes in this case are big enough to drive a bus through, let alone my little Geo, he told the jury. Virginia Tatum, who testified that she had Inman's face forever etched in her memory, simply didn't see what she said she saw, Perry said. He mentioned the $5,000 reward and implied that Tatum was motivated by that and not by any sense of justice. He said the authorities are duty-bound to follow the evidence wherever it may lead, 
down any road it may take them. But, he said, quote, the Devanya Road is the only road they went down, unquote. Perry, by the way, died two years ago. D.A. Bob Ellis took a folksy, more ironic approach, but was no less effective. In response to the defense closing, he said, it's almost as if he hasn't been in the same place I've been for the last few days, because what he said he saw ain't what I saw. Ellis acknowledged that his case depended almost entirely on witness testimony and said he wished he had more physical evidence, but he didn't. We don't have the murder weapon. We'd like to have the gun. If we had a videotape, three preachers at the scene, the gun, all that would be nice. My job as the prosecutor would be made much easier if there was a videotape of every crime. It'd be lovely. Ellis asked the jury how Kwame Spaulding, the jailhouse snitch, knew so many details of the crime if he hadn't heard them from the actual killer. Ellis told the jury, I suggest to you this defendant is a dangerous man. He stole her car. He stole the money. He killed her as if she were nothing. She was nothing to him. Nothing. No more than stepping on an insect. Nothing. Defense co-counsel Melinda Ryle said juries are famously unpredictable. She said she didn't know what to expect as this one retired to deliberate. I guess my thing, particularly this type of trial is, you're definitely hoping for the best and you're striving for the best, but you never know, you know, what a jury's going to do. You know, you're hoping that they can see through a lot of things and see, well, if we got statements like this, well, what in the world did happen? We're hoping, you know, the whole time that we're showing reasonable doubt. The jury was sequestered for the duration of the trial. They had worked hard. Nights, Saturdays, Sundays after church. Here's one member of Inman's jury. He asked that his name not be disclosed, and we're granting his request, as we routinely do for jurors. We've stayed at the, uh, the Days Inn here in town. That's uh, The IHOP is adjoining it, and that's where we, we would eat breakfast at the IHOP every morning. Of the, and they have a uh, room, room just for us. Uh, we could use the pool, but it was only the jurors, so they asked some guests to leave so the jury could have pool time and stuff like that. It was different. It's kind of like being at camp. Armed guards escorting us. The jury convened early on Monday after an exhausting court session that ran until 8.50 on Sunday night. As they deliberated, the jurors had some questions for the court. For one, they wanted to review the statement Kwame Spaulding made to police. Judge Buster McConnell had them come back into the courtroom and he read Spaulding's statement to them. Here's that juror again. Kwame Spaulding was really what I remember the turning point for a lot of us at, at the, that were on the jury. And his, his testimony of what he learned while, if I'm remembering all this correctly, it's been a while, but what he learned as being a, I believe he was a cellmate of uh, Mr. Inman and the, uh, the things he told us. And along with Miss Tatum's testimony, it seemed to, those two really seemed to, but it, it, it was Kwame's that, that really turned it, I believe, in my mind. He had a lot of detail that we didn't think could have came from anything but from the source. The juror recalled that the case hinged on witness testimony rather than physical evidence and said the jurors had to make a choice about Kwame Spaulding. In a situation like that, you have to believe somebody at some point, and I guess we chose to believe what he was saying because there were so many details that we didn't think he could have found out any other way. About 25 minutes after hearing the judge read Spaulding's statement, the jury reached a unanimous verdict. 
Here's the juror describing how the discussion played out. There was no great big discussion. No, he is totally innocent. He is innocent. No, there was none of that. The first vote, it was, uh, we had nine guilty, zero for not guilty, and uh, three that were undecided. That was at 11.04, and then uh, at 12.13, we were all in agreement that he was guilty. The prosecution of a capital case leads to what's called a bifurcated trial. The guilt or innocence phase is a trial unto itself, of course, but the sentencing phase is also a trial with its own opening statements, witnesses, evidence, and closing arguments. Under Georgia law, the state must prove the presence of at least one aggravating circumstance before a jury can decide whether a death sentence is appropriate. For example, was this a contract murder in which someone was hired to kill? Was the victim a police officer? Was the murder especially heinous, atrocious, cruel, or depraved, or involved torture? In this instance, was the murder committed during the course of an armed robbery? That wasn't a hard question, right? Likewise, the defense tries to show mitigating circumstances or reasons the defendant should not be put to death. During this phase of the trial, defense attorney Perry tried, once again, to get in testimony about Hercules Brown and how he confessed to two different people. Prosecutor Ellis, once again, argued against it. He acknowledged that Hercules Brown was under indictment for an unrelated double murder, but he said Brown had nothing to do with the Taco Bell killing. I quote, There is not one scintilla of evidence that suggests that's credible, unquote. Once again, Judge McConnell kept it out. The defense called nine witnesses in mitigation, including both of Inman's grandmothers, his brother, his stepfather, and his mom. Before it began deliberations, the jury was given three options by the judge. It could sentence Inman to life with parole, life without the possibility of parole, or death. Here's the juror explaining how deliberations went in this phase of the trial. So it started out one, life with parole, six, life without parole, and five, four, the death penalty, and it ended up, all 12 of us, life, life without parole. I was not for the death penalty. I believe I was life without parole right off, right off the bat. I do remember the main reason the majority of us weren't for the death penalty is because the murder weapon wasn't there. And I think that, I do remember that with me. For that, I mean, a death penalty is, is what it is, a death penalty. I mean, and, and I think that had a, I don't really know how to explain it, but a life without parole seemed very appropriate. Inman, of course, would appeal but there's something you need to know about such appeals. They can't be heard until the court reporter produces a full transcript of the trial. So how long does that take? In this case, the 3,327 pages of transcript took three years to prepare. Three years. So Bud Seaman, the lawyer handling Inman's appeal, raised a number of issues, leading off with Judge McConnell's refusal to admit the evidence about Hercules Brown. Next, he challenged the use of so-called similar transaction evidence, Inman's criminal record from California. And you can guess what else. The fact that two of the witnesses had slept with one of the jurors. But the arguments didn't fly. On September 18, 2006, a unanimous Georgia Supreme Court upheld Inman's conviction. That was five years after Inman's trial. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal Constitution presents Hip Hop's most pulled elements. 
are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Inman didn't pin all his hopes on his appeal. Even before the state Supreme Court ruled against him, he began writing letters to the Georgia Innocence Project. We got a letter from his mother and him very early on. That's Amy Maxwell, the first executive director of the Georgia Innocence Project, which was founded 15 years ago. He was still writing. Of course, we called Bud and found out what had happened. And it's not one of the criteria when you're looking at a case as an innocence project, but when the lawyers who worked on the case are as passionate about someone's innocence as Bud was. And, you know, Bud has been doing this work for, well, a few years, let's say. And he doesn't feel that way about every case. But when he was talking about the case, it makes you think, well, gosh, you know, somebody who's worked that hard on a case and still believes his client's innocent, that you can't, you can't help but be you know, be persuaded by that. But that's certainly not the only reason. We read the transcripts and went through the whole case, and we were also persuaded by his innocence or the possibility of his innocence. And that's the thing. You know, he had a credible claim of innocence. While working on the appeal, Seaman focused on the mask. Remember the mask? At this point, years after Inman's conviction, Forensic science had advanced to the point that a lab could identify the DNA of someone who had come into contact with a piece of evidence. Seaman wanted to try that mask again. Maybe something new would turn up. Do you remember right after the murder how the police didn't see the mask in Donna Brown's car and it was recovered by Brown's family after her car was returned to them? Well, guess what? When Bud Seaman asked for the mask, the state couldn't find it again. The DA said she didn't have it. The court clerk said she didn't have it. Seaman even stopped by the courthouse. He asked to see the evidence in Inman's case. He was presented with one large cardboard box, no mask. When Maxwell went down there three years later, she was given two boxes. Here's Bud Seaman again. And she calls me to tell me they found the mask. And they found the mask in a cardboard box in the clerk's office. And my first thought was, is I looked in that cardboard box and it wasn't there. Even though Maxwell had finally found the mask, she had no idea how many people had handled it over the years. Would there be any useful DNA left? We knew we could tie that mask to the crime scene. But then, if you read the transcript, you know that other people's DNA is on this mask now, right? So it's probably Donna Brown's family has touched it. The police have probably touched it and not with gloves. We know the district attorney held it up in court, so his DNA is all over it. And possibly the jurors have touched it. At this point, Bob Ellis was no longer district attorney. He'd left the office under highly, highly unusual circumstances, which of course I'll detail later. The new DA was Kathy Helms, who appeared opposite Maxwell before Judge Buster McConnell. Maxwell describes the hearing. In her argument in front of McConnell, she talked about how all these people had touched this mask and there's going to be all this mixture DNA and all of that. And it's probably not going to come up with a profile. 
my, of course, statements to the judge were, well, none of us can look at the mask with our eyes or even with a microscope and say there is or is not DNA on the mask. We can't do that. The only people who can do that are scientists. And only after they get the evidence and test it can they give us the answer. So the back and forth, finally we come to an agreement and we get the mask tested. It goes to the GBI. She said the GBI swabbed the mouth area of the mask, looking for traces of saliva on the fabric. Just naturally, we produce saliva, and even though we're not drooling all the time, we are discharging saliva. So um, they test that, and they Just test where, around the eye holes yes. and right where your nose would be. So they test those areas, and they come up with one absolutely clear profile. Just not a mixture, not everybody who's ever touched it. They come up with one profile. The DNA database at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation is called CODIS, Combined DNA Index System. Beginning in 1998, the year Donna Brown was killed, coincidentally, the GBI began collecting and cataloging DNA samples of sex offenders. In the next two years, CODIS solved 13 sex crimes. Later, the state expanded it the state would now swab all convicted felons who entered the prison system. In the years since, CODIS has come up with more than 5,700 DNA hits involving all sorts of crimes. Most are burglary and rape cases, but one of them would turn out to be critically important to Devanya Inman and his lawyers. The single profile match? Inman's lawyers had identified him as a suspect years before but they couldn't get their evidence into the trial. They run it in the database and it comes up to Hercules Brown. And, you know, at that time, Hercules Brown is in prison for another murder. And so they think, well, you know, what, did we do this right? So they, you know, run it again. And sure enough, it's the profile of Hercules Brown. I mean, it is, that is it. Honestly, it was, it was a shock because it was a clear, absolute profile of the the alternate suspect. It was the proof they needed. If the case had gone forward today, that was the proof that would have allowed the defense to bring him in as the alternate suspect. And honestly, if they had had that DNA testing today and the case was going forward, they would have prosecuted Hercules Brown. Here's Jesse Sino, the Georgia State law professor who has gone to bat for Inman. That should be a watershed moment in the case, because if you think about how these cases work, you spend all of this time putting the case together, you finally get to the DNA testing, and you are hoping to God that it comes back and it is not your client. And the reality of doing innocence work is a lot of times it does come back and it's still your client and you've spent years on this issue. But in this instance, not only did it come back and it was not Devanya's DNA, but it it came back and we were able to say to, to put it in a CODIS and to say, is there somebody that this DNA belongs to who's already in prison? And there is. And it's a guy who committed crimes in the same town right after all of this happened. The same M.O. I mean, just astounding. Next on Breakdown. If the DNA evidence implicates Hercules Brown, 
Does it exonerate Devanya Inman? And he said, well, I think it's time that you stop looking into this business, this Taco Bell business, this, uh, this case, these other cases with Hercules Brown. And so I was kind of surprised by that and just said, well, you know, why? And he said, I just think we don't need to be looking into that. So I said, no, I'm going to keep looking into it. And, uh, and that's when things started to go bad between us. Breakdown was reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Sound design by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. Original breakdown theme music composed and performed by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin. Additional music composed and performed by Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Bert Roten, Monica Richardson, Bo Emerson, Melanie Stolte, and all the great folks at the AJC, Buddy Hall, Chris Nicholson, Jesse Sino, Michael Williford, Maida Muhich, and Lynn Taylor. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.